Let's air something out here. I want to open the floor for a minute and hear from you. Does anybody have a really petty pet peeve? Anybody want to share it? I'll go first. Here's a, here's a thing that I, I observe in myself. It drives me crazy to a level that's clearly irrational and pathological. And I should probably like, figure out what's going on. I'm going to talk more about it later in, in the teaching. Uh, here's like a, a serious pet peeve. I go crazy in my head when I'm at the gym and I see somebody like lifting too much weight and doing it poorly. Like, you know, and by the way, it's always guys. I have never seen a woman do this. I don't know what that is. Also, I'm not a big fan of like, prescribing gender roles like that from the stage, but I'm just telling you, like, I go to the gym and it's always dudes and they're lifting way more weight than they need to be and their form is terrible and they're going to hurt something and I'll just like fester on it while I'm there. Again, I'm going to probably talk more about that in a, in a minute. Anybody else have a pet peeve you want to share? Come on, get it out. Talk to us. You got one in the car. You got one like at home. You got it in your romantic relationships. Yeah. Not using your turn signal. Come on. Let's get some righteous anger going in the room. Yes. What else? Yes. If you didn't hear that, they're in front of you at the stoplight. They're on their phone. The light turns green. They don't see it because they're on their phone. And then you miss the light. And they probably squeaked through last minute. Those terrible people. Come on. What else? Uh, there's one over here. Loud talkers in restaurants. Come on, what else? When you park on the wrong side of the street. When you park on the wrong side of the street, don't they understand? This is America. We have the right side of the street for our cars. Yeah. I just discovered one. You just discovered one. This is new. Yes. When someone gouges into the butter with a dirty knife. Oh, when somebody gouges into the butter with a dirty knife. Come on. Yeah, what else? Yeah. More than 10 items in the self checkout lane. Come on. Yeah, what else? Shame on us. Shame on us. Yeah. I know some people are feeling called out right now, of course. Yeah. When you go slow in the passing lane, I have thought to myself, if I worked in law enforcement, all I would do would cruise highways and pull people over for going slow in the passing lane. Yeah, what else? Was there, was there a hand over here? No? Okay. Yes. When people are walking down the middle of the street and you're trying to pass them, you're tempted to bump them just a little bit, right? Just a little nudge. Yeah, that's right. Yes. When there's construction barrels but no construction. Like miles of highway with pristine road just waiting for cars, but you're not allowed to use it. Yep, I know. What else? This is good for us, right? How, how, how are we feeling this morning? All right, well, that's a helpful setup to where we're going today. The unfair thing is all of us who have just named pet peeves are about to feel a little uh, seen uh, by where we go, but you know what? I started, that's why I went first, okay? Uh, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and I promise this is all gonna come together, I, I think. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter seven. We're, we're turning the page to the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. Briefly, let me remind you that Jesus has begun his teaching saying that God wants to give God's life to you and live God's life through you. That's the promise of the kingdom of heaven is yours. No matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been, no matter what's happened to you, no matter what you think about yourself, God wants to give God's life to you and live God's life through you. And then he moves into these snapshots and warnings and invitations for what that life looks like and the things that might keep us from that life and the hope of that life. 
And we have some more sort of direction and warning and caution in Matthew chapter 7. Let's start here on the screen. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Let's keep going. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Uh, One more here. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, my my apologies for, like, having you name your your pet peeves, and now you're feeling a little bit convicted, but again, I went first. Um, Jesus says, don't judge, and then there's this sort of uh, famous proverbial teaching about plank in your eye and a speck in somebody else's, and we just want to work this out today for a little bit and think about what it might be saying to us, specifically as people who are asking, what does it look like for God to give God's life to us and live God's life through us? Now, I don't know about you, but the text raises all sorts of questions. Uh, First of all, it seems like Jesus actually does some judging in the Gospels. It seems that Jesus is not afraid to call other people out. It seems that he's not afraid to confront things, to say that's wrong. You are wrong. You did something wrong. This this situation is wrong. This belief is wrong. So he he does some calling out and judging on his own, which is curious. Um, It also seems that um, some things desperately need judged in the world, right? Like, some things need judged. Some things need called out. Some things are broken and hurting people. Some things aren't right. Some things need judged. And so it, like, raises the question, is he just saying, like, like it's never okay to tell the truth about what you see when somebody's uh, doing something wrong or harmful or violating in the world? I don't know about you, but, like, I feel these questions here. At the same time, I also, like, sense this very general and basic clarity about what makes sense in this teaching to me which is that a lot of us are tempted to have more opinions about other people's lives than our own. A lot of us are tempted to direct judgment everywhere but at ourselves, and there seems to be like a really basic hypocrisy in that that Jesus calls out, right? There's also this note that in the Sermon on the Mount, it's helpful to read it remembering that Jesus is speaking specifically to disciples, a a group of people who have decided that they want to follow him and pursue their life with God through him, And another way of saying that is Jesus is speaking maybe specifically to the church. And God knows churches can be places where all kinds of judgmentalism runs rampant, right? And I don't care if it's like the kind of personal piety that we judge one another for in typically conservative spaces or the kind of social piety that we judge one another for in typically progressive spaces, but both of those can kind of have a religious energy to them, right? Where we are on the prowl moving through the world sort of feeling self-righteous, observing other people's infractions, unaware of our own. I mean, that's pretty obvious that that happens here. But I think there's something more interesting going on, and it specifically shows up in the language Jesus uses about speck and plank. Now, you have to appreciate the comedy of some of the situations that Jesus describes, right? A plank of wood. Like, you see a speck, you know, you picture, you ever get like an eyelash in your eye? And like you're there at the mirror, you know, kind of hunting for that tiny, practically microscopic little thing that's driving your eye crazy and it's impossible to see because it looks a little bit like those tiny little like veins or capillaries that are in your eye and you don't know what you're looking for. That's like a speck in the eye. And then he describes a plank, like a large piece of wood. This is a strange scenario that he's describing, but I think if you let the comedy of it kind of work on you a little bit, it begins to describe something that we know that happens with us in our relationships with one another. This is a person walking around with a severe problem. They have a plank of wood in their eye, 
right? Obsessing over somebody else having a speck of dust in their eye. Let me say that again. This is a person with a severe problem of their own, with a plank of wood, with a large piece of wood in their eye somehow, obsessing rather over somebody else having a speck of dust in their eye. Now, am I crazy, or does this begin to sound a little bit like repression and projection? I've got this big, gnarly problem, this unresolved thing in my life, this shadow that I'm carrying, this issue that is in me, that is with me, and I'm ignoring it, pretending it's not there, but somehow seeing a version of it in you. It might be that it's there in you. It might be that it's not there in you. But if it's there in you, it's described as a speck, as a tiny little thing that you might be carrying or dealing with. I'm walking around with this large... A fairly obvious problem that everybody else can see, but I'm ignoring it, unaware of it, don't seem to see it in myself, but I see it in you. This is sometimes what we, what we mean when we talk about things like repression and projection. Now, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not trained in this field, so this might be a little bit of malpractice about to happen, but we're going there anyway. Um, it's not uncommon for us to see in others the things that we are dealing with ourselves, Right? especially when we haven't named the things that we are dealing with ourselves, right? You're dealing with some kind of pain, some kind of um, struggle, some kind of destructive pattern, some kind of issue in your own world, your own life, your own heart, your own experience. It's, it's with you, and maybe you don't even name it. Maybe you don't even know it, but it's there. And, and yet you, you have the ability to see it in everything around you. This is why a number of spiritual teachers have said something along the lines of, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. That we have this capacity to kind of project out into the world the things that we are carrying and struggling with. Now, one way of netting this out comes from a tool that some of you love, some of you hate, and some of you don't know about. It's called the Enneagram. And I just think, I'm not like a all things Enneagram, but the Enneagram is a useful tool that says that there's roughly sort of nine different ways of showing up in the world. Some people call it a personality tool or a spiritual tool. Again, I don't mean that it's gospel, but I think it's a helpful way of sort of netting out different versions of this for different kinds of people. Uh, the Enneagram, uh, its sort of current expression came about in the 70s, although it has roots that go much farther back than that. And one of its applications in the 1970s and on was that Jesuit spiritual directors, these are uh, Catholic spiritual directors, who were meeting with people they were trying to help grow toward God and grow in wholeness and holiness in the world, they would use the Enneagram to understand the people that they were working with. And it would help the spiritual director understand some of the shadow side that each person they were working with was dealing with and some of the unique opportunities for grace and growth in their life. And one of the early teachers in that sort of 70s and 80s era movement of the Enneagram is a psychologist named Jerome Wagner. And one of the things that Wagner has worked out with the Enneagram, again, the Enneagram is just one way of sort of sorting out our different proclivities, but it can be a useful one. And him using the Enneagram, uh, he says this. He says, when we over-identify or over-idealize certain capacities, which is one way of saying what the Enneagram does. Wherever you show up in the Enneagram, you probably over-identify with some of your capacity, with some of your strength, with some of like what you bring into the world, then what you also end up doing is you disavow those capacities' opposites. So I'll just I'll go first here before we work through all of this. Uh, I show up as an Enneagram 5. 
Um, which means that, like, for example, competence is how I feel safe in the world. I want to be competent. I want you to think I'm competent. I want you to think I have like all my sort of information perfectly stacked up that I understand the world really, really clearly. It feels safe for me to be competent, which means my temptation is to disavow any experience of incompetence, right? But it goes further because when you start disavowing parts of yourself that are with you, whether you like it or not, what do you do? You might start projecting them onto other people. And so I am inclined to overestimate other people's incompetence. Don't ask the staff team about this later. That will not be helpful for our team dynamics. <laughs> I'm not proud of this. This isn't good. But this is an example of how this can work. So I over-identify with, I like to feel confident because it makes me feel safe, which means I, I kind of like try to like run away from my own experiences of incompetence because they're really uncomfortable for me. But the more you run away from something that's with you or in you, the more it might start coming out sideways when you put it on other people. Now, since I'm not the only one who's uh, uh, here to be uh, growing and healing, let's go through all the numbers and make everybody feel a little uncomfortable. Uh, so this is just a brief summary uh, of Dr. Wagner's work where he specifically looks at what he calls these polarities, right? So if you show up in the space described by the Enneagram 1, the number 1, um, you probably have a really strong identification with goodness or rightness or righteousness. It feels really good to, to be right and to be like moral and upright. You want to follow the rules. But that means the temptation would be to disavow like the, the places in your life where it's really hard to get yourself in line, right? Which means at its worst, you might be walking around with a plank of your own that you're dealing with, but instead you're, you're obsessing over the speck of somebody else's unrightness. Uh, how about uh, the people who show up described as a two? Uh, the two can be described as a kind of loving helper. Uh, you want to make yourself useful in service to other people, which can be a beautiful way to show up in the world. However, uh, if you over-identify with your own willingness to be a servant and a helper to other people, then the ways that you have um, what feels like selfishness or neediness, like you might really want to run away from those parts of yourself or those experiences or those trends in your life which means you might be inclined to overestimate other people's neediness or unusefulness. Let's keep going because we're just feeling good today. Uh, if you show up uh, in the space described as a three in the Enneagram, um, it, you might over-identify with your ability to be successful or effective in the world. You can make stuff happen, which is a wonderful gift to give to the world. And yet, because you might be tempted to over-identify with that capacity, it might mean that you sort of disavow or run away from anything in you that feels amateur or unproductive or unimpressive. And if you run far away enough from those very things that are with you, you might start over-projecting them in other people. Uh, people who show up described in the four space by the Enneagram, uh, for example, might um, derive a great sense of safety or identity from being original or unique or authentic or deep. Uh, those are all wonderful things that a human can bring into the world. However, if you over-identify with them, anything in your own life that feels commonplace or shallow might be really, really hard for you. And so you kind of disavow that, you kind of push that down, and then you start seeing other people as commonplace and shallow. How about the five space? I've already talked about this a little bit. Uh, fives want to appear wise and intelligent uh, and attentive, that we see things clearly in the world, which means um, anything in my own life that feels kind of foolish or inattentive or like I missed a detail or didn't observe something, I really want to like get away from that which means it's probably way too easy for me to think that other people are foolish and inattentive. 
People who show up described in the six space uh, often value things like loyalty and security. They want to be loyal and they want people to be loyal to them. They want to be secure. They want to make other people secure. Again, those are wonderful things. Like what a gift to be the kind of person who builds loyalty and security in the world. However, um, that could mean that by over-identifying with those traits, um, you're really uncomfortable with any way that in your own life you are unfaithful or unloyal or kind of reckless, that you create risk in the world for yourself or others. And because it's really uncomfortable to face your own tendencies in those directions, you push it down and it might be possible that you overestimate other people's infidelity, unfaithfulness, or recklessness. People described in the seventh space uh, often identify highly with a sense of joyfulness, playfulness, enthusiasm. Yeah, you always know when the sevens are in the room because they let you know about it in a really wonderful, lifting way. Uh, there's, there's a real lift to the presence and the energy of a seven in the room. However, that can mean that sevens, because they want to identify with that lift, uh, under-identify with or run away from or repress the things that feel like they drag them down into negative feelings or experiences or emotions or pain. Um, sevens can project onto other people an overriding impression that they are pessimistic or dull. Um, eights, by the way, nobody elbows somebody that you're sitting next to as we move through this. That's not nice. Eights uh, want to identify with a sense of strength and independence. Eights want to make sure that they can assert themselves in the world, that somebody else won't be able to control them or manipulate them. And because of that, it's possible that they will um, be very uncomfortable with their own experiences of weakness or neediness because it might feel like weakness or neediness makes them vulnerable to somebody else manipulating them or controlling them. But because they're running away from that, because that's really uncomfortable for them, it's possible that somebody showing up as an eight is going to overestimate other people's weakness and neediness. And finally, people who show up described as nines are sometimes described as peaceful or laid back. Nines often derive a sense of safety by not ruffling anything around them, but just kind of going along with the things around them to have a, a feeling of peace, although that's not often real peace, right? Uh, but at their best, nines uh, bring this sense of calmness, and groundedness to the world around them. But often the ways they try to achieve that is by laying down any feeling of ambition or conflict or confrontation. And because things like ambition or conflict or confrontation are so uncomfortable, and because there's a temptation to disavow that in their own life, they might over-identify it in others. Does anybody just feel a little bit seen right now? <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, this is just one way of working out what I think might be going on here. And again, I'm not saying the Enneagram is the end-all and be-all, but I do think it's a very helpful tool. And when Jesus talks about somebody walking around with a plank in their eye, of like a serious, very obvious problem that they are ignoring, while they are obsessing over a speck in somebody else's, it sounds a little bit to me like this is happening. It's interesting, Jesus says, deal with the plank in your own eye first, and then you will see clearly to help your brother with a speck in theirs. And I already said it, right, that part of the problem here is that we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. And I think there's a real danger in moving toward other people, thinking our job is to remove the speck in their eye when we haven't been doing our work. Because if we're not doing our work, facing our shadows, like learning how to reintegrate the parts of ourselves that we are most afraid of or running from, if we're not doing that, then we're not trustworthy to come at somebody else and try to remove the speck in their eye because we don't see clearly. And that's actually kind of dangerous, right? It's dangerous to show up in relationship or in the world at large to use our power or our influence to call out the speck in somebody else's eye when we don't realize that the very reason we're obsessing over their problem is that we haven't faced our own, 
right? Uh, there's this interesting text in um, Galatians chapter 6. So this is Paul writing to a church. Uh, let me show you what he says. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, by the way, that's an act of judgment, right? To, to say, hey, that's sin. That's wrong. That's not right. You should not be living that way or doing that or moving in that direction. So this implies that the community is doing some kind of judging. But he says, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Now, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. I think there's a lot of weight and importance in those words. Others' translations say, you who are spiritual, which might sound kind of weird. Is that like some kind of religious elitism? Like not all of you are spiritual, but those of you who are spiritual enough, you're the ones who get to do this kind of judging work. Well, I think a deeper reading of this is to say that, what, like, what does the Spirit do? A lot of what the Spirit does in making us holy is make us whole. Like, like I, I am never more confident that the Spirit is at work than when I'm with somebody who's facing their dark parts, their shadow side, and working that stuff out. And I think what Paul is saying is, if you're working with the Spirit, if you trust that the Spirit is kind of working you out and growing you up and making you whole, then, then you are becoming the kind of person who can be trusted to help other people on their way out of their shadow, right? And uh, look what the goal, of course, is, to restore that person gently. If you see somebody, like, going in the wrong direction, doing the wrong thing, you who are doing your own work can be trusted, but w why are you going to move toward that brother or sister? To restore them, to call them home, to help them, like, come back to themselves and to the community. This is different than the energy of a lot of judgment that's really more um, of a kind of purging energy, right? Which, by the way, brings up the fact that this whole kind of judging thing isn't just think something that happens between individuals. We also have to talk for a minute about group judgments and group dynamics. Um, much of the Sermon on the Mount, if it's kind of first-level reading, isn't speaking just to interpersonal behavior. It's, it's speaking to a group. A lot of the Sermon on the Mount, I say, you all. You as a community, you as a family, you as a group. I'm talking about the, the way that you behave as a group. And I think we have to talk for a minute about group judgments and purity cultures. Uh, anybody ever heard the phrase purity culture? Yeah, okay. A, a lot of people in our church um, have church background. And uh, one way that the term purity culture has been used in the last few decades is to describe a certain way of working out a certain sexual ethic in certain sort of like often evangelical church spaces, right? Um, and this has to do with like saving yourself for marriage. So that's a sexual ethic. Um, and purity culture is often used to describe a certain way of working that out in churches, right? But purity culture is actually a bigger term than that. And it refers to something um, more fundamental than the specifics of what I just said. Purity culture is what happens anytime a group feels the need to purge something impure from its midst. Anytime a group feels like there's an impurity among us, there's something that we have to purge, something that we have to like eject from this community, from our space, so that we can maintain group purity. And if you think about human history, it's not hard to think of examples when the group impulse toward purity has had heinous results in the world, right? Uh, when a group decides that we have to maintain purity and purge that which is impure, this gets really nasty. And again, I think part of what's happening here is it's a group that is having a hard time facing its own shadows. And so it's easier, safer, more comfortable to project all of our stuff on a scapegoat, on, um, on a, a group or a person or an identity 
or a category that we just sort of take all of our junk, all of our fear, all of our anxiety, all of our shadow side, all of our insecurity, all of our shame, all this stuff, and we kind of put it on that group or person. And this is like deep in the human experience. And again, like you don't have to think long and hard to think of historical examples where this has happened. But once you begin to like understand this impulse, you can kind of sniff it out. And it happens in families and it happens in churches and it happens in cities and communities and schools and countries and government. Like it it happens in lots of places. Groups decide there's an impurity among us and our salvation will be found in purging the impurity. If you read the Gospels, And you have this framework in the background of your mind while you read about the life of Jesus, it'll blow your mind the way that Jesus interacts with this dynamic. You will discover Jesus is like always sniffing out anytime any group has this impulse and he just like pokes it. Like, frankly, I think one of the reasons that violence came against Jesus is because he did that. And if you you do that, the bear is going to come after you. And the bear came after him. I mean, obviously, like at the end of his life when he's crucified, but all along the way, you just see the groups. Like, often groups think he's one of us. He's one of ours. And they're happy because he, he, they think that he's going to reinforce their group identity. And then he, he senses that that thing is happening there. That, that, that this group has a kind of collective self-righteousness. And so I'm just going to poke it, right? You see, for example, he's among people at, at some points in the Gospels who have a a deep sense that like personal and even like sexual piety is what helps us remain pure before God and will secure our salvation. And so then, for example, if a woman has been given a reputation for being sexually promiscuous, a a lot's being projected on that woman. That's not even her fault. Men do this a lot, by the way, right? And so you see Jesus like with these people, with these religious leaders, it's like you can like read the script in his mind. He's like, oh, you think she's the impurity that we need to reject? Okay, cool. Let me bring her to the table. Let me celebrate her for anointing my feet in a very sort of intimate and bodily act right here in your midst. You think she's the impurity that we need to get rid of, that we need to cast out of our midst to maintain our salvation? I'm going to bring her right here to the table. Another time, another group. Oh, you think that Roman soldier, the representative of the very thing that is oppressing our people, you think he is the impurity that we need to reject? Let me tell you, he's actually a hero of the faith. And I've never seen faith like this among, among you people. You read it and you're like, Jesus, what are you doing? You can't say that. It's like anywhere he finds this impulse in the group to take all of its shadow, all of its darkness, all of its struggle and project it on somebody else or some other group and say, that's the impurity that must be cast out. He just pokes it. Because I think he has this deep insight about human nature, that we are the people walking around with planks in our eyes, obsessing over the specks in somebody else's eyes. We sang earlier, when I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother. Of course, the other side of that coin is that when you look into the face of your brother, you see an enemy. When I look into the face of my sister, I see an enemy. If, if I am projecting all of my own darkness and shadow on them, because I can't really get rid of it. It doesn't go away just because I ignore it. I've got to do something with it, but it's easier to put it on you than it is to name it in me. And people do it, and groups do it, and when we do it, we are capable of the worst kinds of things. And Jesus is saying, like, you don't see clearly. Your vision is confused. What you think you see in somebody else isn't true because you haven't done your work, right? Now, lastly, let me just say this. I don't think this is just psychological. Um, I think it's theological for Jesus. Like, and by the way, I'm grateful for like, modern psychology. I think it's incredibly important and useful, especially like, in our journey with God and with one another. I think it's very helpful. But I think there's more going on here than psychology. I think there's theology going on for Jesus. 
Uh, Jesus was a Jewish man in the first century, which means the first prayer that he would have learned, uh, like when he just began to understand language as a very young child, the first prayer that he would have learned and the first prayer that he would have prayed in his life, which would also become the first prayer that he would pray every day of his life, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let me show you this. This is the prayer of every faithful Jewish person who would like pray this like the beginning of their day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, I don't know if that seems like the kind of prayer you would think that would be the most important prayer of a person, but this is the, this is the pillar prayer, the core prayer that Jesus would have learned growing up. Here is where the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus spent his entire life meditating on the fact that at the heart of reality is an unfractured wholeness. That at the heart of reality there is a unity that has never been divided against itself. That that's at the core of everything. And for Jesus, this whole teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is his try, his trying to invite us to understand the nature of the life of God so that we can be a part of the life of God, right? And so Jesus, having spent his entire life meditating on the fact that the Lord is one, that at the center of everything there's an undivided wholeness, there is a unity there, seems to have sent him searching out all of the ways that we are divided within ourselves and amidst ourselves. Not just, not just like in a relational conflict, but deep in the human soul that we are divided against ourselves in so many ways. And he seems to be on the hunt for it and then calling us back to reconciliation, unity, integration, wholeness. And so for Jesus, I don't think this is just about interpersonal conflict or about hypocrisy or about psychology. I think Jesus has this, this deep and intimate sort of participation in his own life and body with that wholeness that we call God. And he's saying, like, when you live divided within yourself or against others, you are not living in the life of God. And so the invitation is to, like, face the dark parts, the shadows, figure out the plank that you are carrying and deal with it. And then you will be able to see clearly. And then you who are spiritual can walk with your sister and brother and help them walk away from the sin that is breaking them down. Then you can be the kind of person who restores others because having done your own work, which is never done, but you know, being the kind of person who's facing your shadows and dealing with the plank that you're carrying, you might be a little more trustworthy when you say, I think I see a speck in that eye. Can I help you with that? And like, don't you want to be that kind of person? I mean, there's a lot that needs judged in the world. God knows. There's a lot that needs called out. There are behaviors and systems and people in power and structures that we have built. There's a whole world that needs a lot called out and um, wisely judged. Not that it would be condemned, but that it would be restored. And we need more people who are capable of doing that work and seeing clearly. And if we want to be those kind of people, then I think we've got to take Jesus seriously when he says, you might have a plank in your eye. And the work that God wants to do right now is to work on it with you so that then you can move out and make some peace. Uh, that's what I got in Matthew 7, chapter, or verses 1 through 5. Sound good? Uh, if you're able, will you stand to your feet? Uh, for some, this will be then an invitation to pull out the journal and think about some of the uncomfortable parts of yourself that are the hardest for you to reconcile with. For others, it'll be an invitation to call up somebody who can help, maybe a good psychologist or spiritual director or mentor who can like, walk with you and do that kind of gentle, patient work of finding the plank and facing it. Uh, for others, this might call us to an act of repentance or apology. 
Maybe we'll re realize that there's a particular relationship or group where we've been putting a lot on them that's not really fair to them. And realizing that we haven't seen them clearly, at some point it might call us to go and apologize. And I mean, that might begin to be the, the process that allows us to see them more clearly. Uh, and for others, um, it might just be an invitation to ask about the manner in which we judge. And ask if the, if the energy driving that is really coming from something whole within us or something broken. So uh, may we know what Jesus knows, that at the heart of reality is a God who has never been divided. May we know what Jesus knows, that, that, that we are endlessly capable of projecting and purging and putting our darkness and shadow on other people. May we know what Jesus knows, that whole groups of people are capable of the worst kinds of things when we don't realize that we are putting our shadows on somebody else. May we heal and deal with our planks and be the kind of people who can restore one another in peace. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week or tomorrow night.